So what we're doing this fall is that we are making our way through the book of First, First Peter. And the Apostle Peter is writing this book, this very short letter, to Christians in rural Turkey. These Christians are new converts. They have recently come to the, the Christian faith. But they have been marginalized for their faith. In fact, they have been forcibly relocated, pushed out of their homes, and resettled. That's the specific context Peter is writing in, and so he's encouraging them. And very specifically in this moment, what we're going to be getting, getting into over the next three weeks is that he is giving, Peter is giving ethical directions. He's giving lessons in ethics to these Christians, that how they should live and their various roles and in, in, in light of their various responsibilities in society. And he's doing this in a way that is typically observed as household codes. He's right now, and we don't see this today, he's addressing servants. And then uh, in the f- over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, wives and husbands and, and masters. And so this is actually very striking because Peter's household codes are very different from the household codes of his context and his, the larger Roman society. For example, in the Roman household codes, wa- women were not addressed whatsoever. The men were addressed. The husbands were addressed very specifically. And slaves or household servants, either or, they were not addressed either. Their masters were or their employers were. And so there was, in Roman society, a very rigid social economic structure where there were different classes. There was um, that that you just did not... uh, converse with people in different classes whatsoever. And that's what, what made Christianity so scandalous, is that men and women were worshiping together. Men and women were being equal together. That servants and masters were, were conversing and being equal together. And it's not just uh, the social economic classes. It also had to do with uh, being uh, different ethnicities coming together and worshiping God and being part of the same family. And so that's really one of the reasons why Christians were marginalized. And so Peter, as we lean into... lean into 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3 over the next few weeks, we're going to to be seeing just how different the Christian lifestyle and ethic is for Christians today. And so let's dive into this. We're going to be looking at two different passages this morning. 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25, and then jumping to 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and you can follow along in the worship guide or on the screens beside me. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentile, excuse me, and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And jumping to 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, let me pray for us one more time. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this good word. It is your word that is given to us that we would have life with you. So, Father, be with us now as we consider your word. May we, we see your beauty, may we see your grace, and may we have life with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. House was a popular television show that had a popular run. It, was, it ran for eight years, and it was loosely inspired by Sherlock Holmes. But instead of being a TV show about a freelance police investigator, House is a medical doctor who would solve medical mysteries. He's brilliant. He would solve cases no one else could. He's eccentric where he would always have his eureka moment where he would have his breakthrough idea while having a mundane conversation or doing something truly trivial. But he was also an addict. He had a drug habit. He was coping with immense pain in his leg, and his pain and his suffering led him to be cruel. His pain and suffering led him to mock everyone around him. And because of that, he only had a handful of friends. No one wanted to work with him. No one wanted to be around him. And he would constantly, and his friends would even justify his behavior this way, because he was both brilliant yet in pain. And he would justify his cruelty, saying just that. He, you, so you, if you watch the television show, you would see him being cruel. And then next thing he would say, I'm in pain. And his entire idea is that, like, I am suffering. I'm going through all this pain. That means I get to be cruel and a jerk to you as well. And so this gets at how we understand pain and suffering in our lives. Just think about the question, what impact does pain and suffering have upon your life? For house and perhaps even yourself, pain makes you more irritable, less enjoyable as a person where you do not want to be, where you find that others don't want to be around you. But when we come to this text, because of Jesus, something else is offered very distinctly. Differently, Because of Jesus, when we depend upon Jesus, when we suffer, we're going to find out that we can actually become more gracious, more loving, more charitable and compassionate because of Jesus Christ. 
That is the stark contrast that Peter wants us to see. That when we are suffering, we do not have to become more miserable. Instead, when we are suffering, we can actually become more loving and more life-giving people. And at this moment in in Peter's letter, there is a, a big shift going on. And that... And we are going to see this over the next coming weeks. But even right now as he begins talking about this household codes, where we think about how Christians are meant to live as really employees, Peter is rooting his ethic for us in Jesus' suffering. But if you just look at this, suffering is going to be a theme that we're, he's going to can, can always keep coming back to. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice that at the heading in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22, is suffering for righteousness' sake. And then jumping even to uh, chapter 4, which we just read, it talks about suffering as a Christian. So in other words, every single time, Peter, in the rest of the, the book, in every single chapter, there's going to be a major theme of suffering. And this is something else for us to lean into. As we lean into this text, where yes, we are finding Paul, not Paul, we're finding Peter giving instruction to us as employees, as workers in society, but he's also rooting our ethic in Christ's suffering as well. That's going to be something that, that in, in fact, as Jesus suffered, that's going to be the theme for the rest of the book. And so let's look and see where he starts this out. Like the main idea for us today is in verse 21, chapter 2, verse 21. For, you, for to this you have been called, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his step, footsteps. So right here, we, I want you to see a picture that you have actually been called to suffer and to imitate Jesus Christ as he suffered. And this is... This is a big picture of Peter's letter. In other words, Christians are called to suffer and to suffer well. And, as and we find out and we discover that as we are suffering, we will become the people that God always in, intended us to be. But it's through suffering. So this is actually something that we need to give a lot of thoughtful thought to. But let's dive into this text. And I want to notice that Peter has a very narrow focus, but then he uses that narrow focus at focusing on servants and then steps back and stretches it as a metaphor for the entirety of, of the Christian life, that we are servants, that we are suffering servants. So let's just dive into this. Peter begins by addressing servants here in, in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. Now, some translations translate the word servants here to be slave. However, that's not a fair, nor is it an accurate translation of the text, because there are two Greek words that can mean slave, but they carry completely different connotations. Like one word, for example, is doulos, which simply means truly slave as we more accurately think about it. But the other word that is here is uh, like which is rooted in the word house. And the idea that it, it, Peter is, the people whom Peter is writing here are household slaves. They're household servants. And so at, at a very big picture, so let's just take a step back. Because of that like mistranslation, some people have thoughts about slavery from this passage. 
there's this idea um, in our culture that some people have a problem with Christianity because it does not explicitly reject slavery as we understand it. And Peter is actually very careful not to to reject slavery. He's very careful how he talks about uh, these household servants in, in a very particular way because Peter doesn't want them to be like Spartacus. If you know Roman history, Spartacus was a gladiatorial slave who led a rebellion, a slave rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so Peter knows that those type of slave rebellions popped up all over the place, and so he was very careful not to, to, to give Christians any, um, any substantial thought that they can actually uh, revolt against the Roman government. Peter is, wants to do something completely different. Peter wants these Christians to live quiet lives that subvert the Roman Empire. And that's actually exactly what happened. But let me give an, a picture of how the Christian ethic would subvert that, that how, let me give a picture of how the Roman Empire subverted the Roman Empire. It's not here in First Peter, but it's somewhere else in the New Testament. It's the book of Philemon. And that may be an odd uh, book to come to if you know it, because this is a book about uh, a slave owner and, and his slave. The slave owner is Philemon. The slave is Onesimus. And what happened is that the slave ran away from his master. And, and so Onesimus runs away, and he somehow comes across the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul knows Onesimus' master, Philemon, because Philemon is also a Christian. But what happens through Paul's ministry is that Onesimus also became a Christian. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, but he writes a letter, and he sends this letter back to Philemon with Onesimus. And the su substantial content of this letter, and this is Philemon 116, is this. And I'm really paraphrasing, but this thought from Philemon 116. Paul says, greet him, not as a slave, but as a brother and co-heir in Christ. This man who is your slave is now your equal. Treat him as such. And so this actually helps us see just how Scripture, how the, the Christian ethic would subvert. That how in the world could an institution like slavery where there are masters and servants be justified when, when both of the master and the servant or the slave come to faith in Jesus Christ. They are equals. And that simple fact means that you should treat one another as equals, as co-heirs, as people who have the same inheritance in Jesus Christ. That's subversive. That entire idea overthrew slavery as we understand it in society. And so this even helps us even more see the relevance of Scripture because returning to this passage, servants, is, this is not talking about this concept of slavery as we primarily think of it. Peter is really talking about a work relationship between an employee and an employer. In the ancient world, employees had very little rights or privileges. And some of us here today may be our own bosses. Others of us may have a good, gentle employer. And others may have a boss who truly sucked the life out of us. And as people who live in 2019, we, there's a big radical difference between us and these servants and these employees one of them is that we, as Americans, we have rights and privileges. But consider a few examples of our current 
work-life dynamic that truly has awful consequences. And this is from an article in The Atlantic that I read this past week. Many employers now schedule employees' work hours using not face-to-face interactions, not a known relationship, but instead these employers use algorithms to calculate exactly how many sets and pairs of hands are required at any given time. This process is known as on-demand scheduling. The algorithms are designed to keep labor costs down, but also rob workers of set schedules. You cannot even plan a week into the future. And so one journalist, uh, she was uh, writing, researching uh, this for this new book she was writing, and she took three different jobs at three different times, and one job was at McDonald's, one job was at a call center, and the other job was at the Amazon warehouse. And she discovered that her work schedule at Amazon would change every week. So one week she would have mandatory overtime, another week she would be working weekends, and another week she, would be, she found that she'd be working holidays. Now, yes, Amazon had nice benefits and they would pay for elective surgery. However, one of her coworkers shared that her, this coworker rarely saw her husband. Her husband happened to be a school custodian. So maybe their schedules allowed for a Sunday night together or a Monday morning together, but they both recognized that they worked for a very low-paying wage. But yet that's on on for those who are really working in a low-income job. But for those on the other side who have a professional career, uh, this is on the other side of the pay scale. Among a survey of 1,600 professionals, these 1,600 professionals averaged, averaged, 65 hours at work with another 25 hours working at home from their smartphones. The point, that I'm, the point I want to make out right now is that as, even though we may not uh, be abused by our employers, as we may think about it from this text, as we look at our work life today, it's hard. Some of you are young in your career, in your professional life. So you have both the energy, you have the ambition, you have the privilege to jump from one profession or workplace to another, and that's great. And what I want to point out, that is a privilege that not everyone can afford. Perhaps the grass is greener on the other side, and perhaps not. But what Peter is telling us, he's telling every single one of us not to have expectations or entitlement when it comes to our work. He's telling us to be good employees. He's telling us to be respectful to our good employers and even to our bad employers. He tells us to be respectful even to the employers who do not care if you're going to make it home in time for dinner or that your phone call is going to disrupt your family vacation. And so what Peter is even pointing out is that sometimes you'll have a work scenario where you're going to be picked on and mocked and ridiculed for your faith. In, verse six, in chapter 4, verse 16, Peter is saying, essentially, yeah, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. So he's pointing out that there are going to be moments where we're going to be marginalized for our faith in our workplace. Here's one example. John Tyson is a pastor in New York City, and he tells a story from his childhood that's like 20, 22 years ago. He grew up in Australia, and his first job was in the meatpacker industry. He was a butcher. Very specifically, he was an apprentice to a butcher. And that's how he learned the meatpacking industry. And this particular butcher shop was full of crude locker room talk. 
And during this moment in his life, this is when John comes to know Jesus Christ. But he didn't become a, a Christian through the workplace. He came, became a Christian through um, other relationships in his life. And this became known at work. And so, you know, personally, just a brief aside, as a pastor, I have people apologizing to me for their vulgar language or around me when they find out that I'm a, a pastor. Do you think that's what happened in John's experience? Do you think people apologize to, the, to him for their locker room talk, their crude jokes and vulgarity? No. It actually increased in a very noticeable way. The crude jokes, the talk about women and Christians increased, and John endured it. Years later, John sees his boss, and his boss tells, tells him, you know, I was really cruel to you. And John says, yes, you were. <laughs> yes, you were. And, and the, his boss says, I found out you were a Christian, and I wanted to make your life miserable because of it. But you didn't. There was a joy about you. And I wondered that then and remembered it. And I wanted to let you know that I became a Christian because of how you joyfully put up with me. See, what John is pointing out for us is that the source and the motivation for his joyful endurance amid difficult work situations is Jesus Christ. And so this is why Peter tells us in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. See, Peter here is rooting the source of our endurance in Jesus Christ He's reminding us very specifically of the specific moments leading up to Jesus' own crucifixion for us. But all the while, as, as Peter is reminding himself of what's called the passion of Jesus Christ, as Jesus is approaching the cross, and we'll look at that in a moment, as, Jesus, as Peter's reminding us of that, he is also quoting almost verbatim from a passage in Isaiah that's known as the suffering servant. And that is Isaiah 53. And, and this is truly, as what Peter's doing here in verses 22 all the way through 25 in chapter 2, what Peter is doing for, for us is that he's showing us that Jesus is your suffering servant. Jesus suffered for you, yet he did not sin. In the Gospel of Mark, this is all from the Gospel of Mark, which is really from, from the Apostle Peter. In the Gospel of Mark, we find that Jesus was slandered by the Sanhedrin. He is slandered by the Jewish council. Later, Jesus is personally ridiculed by the Roman guards, and he is mocked by them, but he is also mocked by the, he's mocked by the criminal who's dying upon the cross next to him. But how did Jesus respond? He did not ridicule. He did not mock. He did not revile them. He did not say a mumbling word. When Jesus uh, repeatedly suffered injustice, he did not retaliate, but he accepted it in silence. There is truly, there's this uh, American spiritual that goes like this. They led him to Pilate's bar. He never said a mumbling word. Not a word, not a word, not a word. They all cr cried crucified. Not a word, not a word, not a word. They nailed him to a tree. Not a word, not a word, not a word. He never said a mumbling word. And see, this goes against everything within us. It goes against our entire mentality and our perspective on life. That when we suffer injustice, when we suffer, when we go through pain, then we need to say something. 
But what we look at Jesus here is that Jesus did not say a word. And what we, Peter tells us is that it's our calling and to, it's our calling to follow Jesus' example. If you're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then you need to know that his footsteps, his way, is going to lead you into suffering. His way is going to lead you to the cross. And also you need to know that his way is going to lead you to resurrection and the life. In other words, to put it more explicitly before us from chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised when you suffer. We are to expect suffering. And this is incredibly challenging for us. My friend Jason went to Africa a few years ago, and he was teaching in, in a seminary in West Africa. And as he was just having a, a casual conversation with the churches there and some of the pastors, he asked them, what's one thing that you observe about the American church that you want me to take home to my people? And unanimously, without missing the beat, from every single pastor there, everyone said, Christ Americans do not know how to suffer. And perhaps this is because, arguably, the most well-known Christian teaching is the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel, just by definition for you, it's, it's, it's really this idea that teaches that God rewards faith by giving material blessings. A friend told me of the church that he attended in college, and this church said to, to them that, hey, if you give to the church, and if you do not see a blessing from God in the next 90 days, we're going to give you your money back. See, in the American church, we do not suffer well. We like our comfort, and, and trust me, you can ask Jennifer this and get firsthand that, you can get her firsthand experience that when I'm sick, I'm not a pleasant person. When my back is sore, I'm a very irritable person, and you have been warned, and I'm sorry. And that is really what I'm about to say is that's a place where God's doing some work in my life. But what I'm pointing out is that as Americans, we don't like to suffer well. And we bring that into our faith. And this is why Peter's words are so relevant to us. That he's telling us, hey, expect to suffer because you're called to suffer because your Savior suffered for you. And so what we do as Americans, we think as American Christians, I should say, we think that suffering is a picture of a weak faith. And the truth is, suffering is a picture of a strong faith. Jesus tells us, blessed are you when others revile and insult you because of me. And he even tells Peter that Peter is going to suffer for his name. And tradition and history tells us that Peter was crucified for Jesus just upside down. See, suffering is a reality that we should expect because we are called to suffer. And one of the questions that we have to answer as we go through suffering, because sometimes we're going to suffer for our Savior's name, and we're going to have to answer the question, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth suffering for? And as we go through suffering, you will find and discover blessings, but you can only discover these blessings by going through suffering, by enduring suffering. But as you go through and endure suffering, we also need to change our perspective on suffering because we bought into a lie. We believe that not only is suffering a picture of a weak faith, we also believe that when we suffer, God has abandoned us. And that could not be further from the truth. 
When we suffer for Jesus, and this is from the First Peter 4 here, when we suffer for Jesus, suffering is a sign that God is with us. Presbyterian pastor Jack Miller, this is from the bulletin reflection in, in your worship guide. He is a fellow Presbyterian pastor, and he suffered in his life. He grieved the untimely death of both his father of his, and of his brother. He personally survived a heart attack. He had lymphoma cancer. He also had a stroke. And, he, he, and this is not to say anything about the substantial challenges in his work, in his marriage, and in his own parenting. This is how he describes the transforming, the transforming power of suffering in our lives. If you've made up your mind that you're going to avoid suffering, then Jesus is not going to reach very deep into you. See, friends, Jesus is a f- fellow sufferer with us. When we suffer, we're going to grow and into the people whom God intends us to be. Because suffering exposes our, our functional gods. Suffering exposes and reveals that even that we know that those gods and those idols are going to fail us. Suffering shows us that without Jesus, we are only coping through life. And suffering confronts us with a decision. Are we going to face and endure suffering on our own? Or are we going to depend upon the creator of of love and justice and goodness. Because Isaiah 43, again, returning to that passage of the suffering servant, Isaiah 43 gives us two promises. Here's Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the fire will not overcome you. For I am the Lord your God. Because you are precious in in my eyes, fear not, for I am with you. The two promises of this passage is that we are going to face suffering. We're going to go through the waters and and rivers and and fires. We're going to go through the flames. But yet they will not overcome us because God is with us. This is the promise that we have because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So certainly we will face pain and suffering and endure it. But because of Jesus... He is with us. Because of Jesus, you are a new person. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, you will be hurt. Yes, you will experience wounds and be traumatized. But you cannot be controlled by that pain. Quite the contrary. Instead of being controlled by your pain and the hurt from suffering, you're going to be controlled by God's love. And he promises never to leave you, nor fail you, nor forsake you as you go through the sufferings of this world. And it's in those moments God does his most incredible work. And so, friends, as we look and remember this passage, beloved, do not be surprised at the suffering that comes to you because God has suffered everything for you and he is with you. So do not be surprised when it comes. Let's pray.